This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. Welcome to another episode of We the People, Our American Story podcast. My guest today is Matthew Wiz Buckley. And before we got started, he asked me to call him by Wiz. So that is what I am going to do. Welcome, Mr. Wiz. How are you? Oh, Tina, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm I'm good. I'm good. Let's, uh, you know, we, we can start by just clearing up the, the common miss. Uh, perception that uh, fighter pilots, you know, are running around out there with Gucci call signs like Maverick uh, or Iceman. Let's just say that some of us earn our call signs, and it's usually by doing something stupid. So I'm Wiz, and and we'll leave it at that. Okay. Yes, I promised Wiz that I would not ask him where he got that name from. We're just going to go with that and call him Wiz. So here we go, Wiz. Let's start at the beginning. What was life like for you growing up? I'm one of six kids, Irish Catholic family. Uh, my, my, my brother and my three sisters were born up in South Philadelphia. And then my parents moved down to the Jersey Shore uh, where I was born and my little sister was born. So, you know, stereotypical Irish Catholic family from South Jersey, South Philadelphia, uh, Catholic schools, altar boy you know, taught to love my country, all that, uh, all that good stuff. And then, uh, unfortunately, uh, as I was just getting ready to enter, uh, high school, uh, my two sisters, my brother, uh, attended Villanova university just outside Philadelphia and, uh, leaving a fraternity priority. My sister Monica was, uh, killed by a drunk driver. Uh, so just absolutely, you know, destroyed my family. It was a, it was a hand grenade in the middle of, uh, of, of my childhood or my young teenage years. So that was brutal. Kind of lost my parents. Uh, so kind of changed the arc of my life, but, uh, at, at a young age, I was always, uh, raised by my parents service above self, very patriotic family. Uh, grandfather served in the, uh, in the Pacific on a submarine, uh, just about every uncle I had, uh, from Philadelphia served in world war II. So very, you know, service oriented family. So I lived on the beach, uh, loved the ocean, loved aviation. So that kind of was a Reese's peanut butter cup, uh, coming together that, you know, I knew at a young age, I wanted to fly uh, jets off of aircraft carriers and, and protect our country. So, uh, after, uh, Catholic high school, all boys, Catholic high school, thanks mom and dad. Uh, <laughs> I decided to, uh, I decided to pitch out of, uh, New Jersey and, uh, and went to college down in Florida at Jacksonville, uh, university. So can I go back a little bit and ask a few questions about that tragic car accident three of your siblings were in that car then no so okay. uh, my, my brother uh, john and my sister marilyn said hey uh, monica we're gonna head back to campus now you know do you, do you want to ride and she said no uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna get a ride with these folks so if she had uh, gone with obviously my brother and my and my other sister she'd be here so no she went in a separate car uh, and, uh, yeah, she was thrown from the car. She broke her neck and her best friend, uh, also broke her neck and was a quadriplegic, uh, for the rest of her life and died, I believe in her forties, just from complications from the accident. So, yeah. So, you know, it was brutal because my, my brother, and my sister obviously carried a lot of guilt, uh, from that. And then I think like about six months ago. Uh, this was pr pretty brutal. We got an email from a lady who, um, you know, Monica had given up her seat uh, in a different car. And this lady sent an email to all of us that said, hey, I just wanted to let you know, I've been carrying this around for years, but uh, she gave me her seat. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I lived, a, I've lived a good life. All, you know, she went to Villanova with her kids. And I mean, just beautiful lady with five kids. And it was just, it was really it was a shot out of the blue. Cause I, I, I did not know that. I did not know that she gave up her seat uh, 
uh, to go to this other car. So yeah, it was brutal. So you know, how old were you at the time? Did you say? Uh, going into high school. Going 14, into high school. Thirteen. Yeah, you were young. How did yeah. that change you? Uh, well, uh, completely, completely lost my faith. I was I was an altar boy. You know, three services on Sunday, Catholic schools, the whole nine yards. Uh, absolutely lost my faith. Uh, there's no such thing as God. There's no God who would do something like this to me and my family. I uh, I played sports in high school and I'd miss the, you know, the bus in the afternoon. And so my dad would uh, often pick me up. And uh, in between my high school, St. Augustine Prep, and our home uh, was the cemetery. And my dad stopped every day. And he got out of that car every day and he cried. Um, so I completely lost uh, my faith. Uh, as a result of that. And then obviously in high school, you know, taking a lot of risk, uh, drinking and stuff like that. I just, I, I just didn't care, uh, you know, anymore, which was brutal, obviously for my parents too. They had already lost one child. Now, you know, I'm kind of, you know, spinning. Um, but I still, you know, I, I put my nose down. I knew I wanted to fly, wanted to go into the Navy. So I had to have good grades and stuff, but I, you know, I still, uh, probably, you know, could have spared them a lot of heartache and, and concern sitting up at night, uh, waiting for me to get home type of thing. So it was brutal. Yeah. Lost my faith for, does it uh, for come later portion. in your story where you find your faith again? I did. Okay. Absolutely. Good. So you graduate from high school. What mm -hmm. comes next for you then? Uh, I went down to Jacksonville University in uh, in North Florida, uh, met my beautiful bride, started dating uh, my, my bride, Susie. We've been uh, married, geez, over 25 <laughs> years. I guess hey, I should know this. I've been married 26. I bet we're about the same age. Yeah, I'm 54. Yep. I'm 53. So, there we go. Yeah, and you I look graduated. great for 54. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Right back at you. Um <laughs> So, we old uh, people have to compliment each other. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, yeah, I graduated in 1991, uh, was commissioned the same day I graduated as an ensign in the United States Navy and uh, studied hard enough in college that I selected aviation and then uh, hopped in my car and drove west from Jacksonville to Pensacola, the cradle, cradle of naval aviation. So I uh, went to flight school after college in Pensacola. And knew I wanted jets, right? Because the uh, the Navy has helicopters, they have propeller planes, they have jets, and then they have different types of jets, right? Jammers, refueling. So uh, in naval aviation, it really is a pyramid. Everybody starts in the same place. And I got a one-bedroom house like the Unabomber out near uh, Naval Air Station Whiting Field because I knew I wanted to study my ass off because I wanted to fly jets. You know, or somebody's of mine, you know, got a place in downtown Pensacola, did the going out, playing volleyball. And of course they ended up flying helicopters. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but it, it's not for me. So it's really studied hard in Pensacola, uh, selected jets. I got uh, picked up for jets and then jumped in my car again with my golden retriever and uh, drove from Pensacola down to Kingsville Naval Air Station in Texas, just outside of Corpus Christi. Uh, and then again, you got to bust your ass because you know, in jets, as I just said, there's a lot of different types of jets. I knew I wanted to fly fighters and I wanted to fly the preeminent fighter at that time, which was uh, out, which was the F-18 Hornet. So lucky enough, uh, busted my ass and got F-18s and we were stationed uh, uh, out in Lemoore, California, which is out uh, in the Central Valley, just south of Fresno. Did you ever consider doing commercial aviation at the start or was it always military and was it always navy or did you consider air force uh, i actually got uh, nominated to the air force academy when i was in high school but i i turned it down i did not you know air force pilots land on nice ten thousand foot runways and uh that was too easy actually, for you it's easy that's a layup um yeah the you know naval aviators land aboard ships at night in bad weather low on fuel when the uh, when something bad happens in the world, the president doesn't go, where's the nearest Air Force base? He says, where's the nearest aircraft carrier? Right. Uh, 75% of this big blue marble is water. So uh, I, I wanted to fly. So I turned that down. Um, when I entered the Navy, I wanted to make it a career. I wanted to be an admiral, a chief of naval operations and stuff like that. But as 
fate would have it. I was going to say luck, but there was no luck as, as fate would have it. That just that wasn't uh, in the cards for a whole host of reasons. But I did when I got out in 2000 off active duty, I got picked up to fly for the reserves uh, F-18s out of Naval Air Station Fort Worth. So in 2000, I left, you know, with a ton of other aviators. If you remember 2000, the dot-com boom and business and all sorts of stuff, you know, I was going to go be a rich airline pilot. And my first day, uh, my first trip as a I pilot. I love this story. Yeah. First trip was uh, the, the morning of September 11th. So I was packing for my first flight uh, the morning of September 11th. And my wife came in with my eight month old son and said, you better come look at the TV. Somebody hit the World Trade Center with an airplane. I said, ah, I'm busy woman, you know, <laughs> small, small airplane, bad weather, you know, whatever. And, you know, just look on her face, told me I was wrong. So I went out to the living room and I just remember standing there looking what you saw. Beautiful day in New York City, not a cloud in the sky and a massive uh, hole in the World Trade Center. And as I'm going through my mental aviation checklist of how that could have happened, the next plane hit. I didn't even blink. I knew we were under attack. Raced into the bedroom, uh, pushed my American Airlines uniform out of the way, and it's plastic, which is still in my closet as a reminder, and uh, threw on my flight suit. Didn't even tie my boots. I just hopped in my old Porsche, 89 Porsche, and I broke the land speed record uh, getting out to Naval Air Station Fort Worth. And they closed it just as uh, they went to ThreatCon Delta, so a combat posture. So they closed the air station. I made it out with uh, one of my squadron mates, Gruff. Uh, and we called downstairs and said, hey, chief, get get a couple jets ready. That time, the uh, ne next to us was an Air Force F-16 squadron, uh, the 457th Fighter Squadron, the SPADs. And being a rich Air Force squadron, they're tied into NORAD, right? They have a command post and, you know, they get all the Gucci tools. So the general called over and said, Wiz, what do you got? I said, it's me and Gruff. And he said, get over here and let's brief. We got to get airborne. So... It was like, uh, you know, Lexington and Concord, man. So we ran over there, went to their command post, and it's four F-16 guys, two Navy Hornet guys, and we're briefing to get airborne and fly a combat air patrol. And, uh, you know, on the TVs and the command post, the Pentagon's getting hit. So it was just, it was incredibly uh, surreal day for me. The Air Force is faster and they're more experienced at this. We're used to being on boats. So they got airborne first and Gruff and I sat at the end of the runway as they, they got airborne and sitting there fully armed and ready to go. Bullets in the nose, missiles on the wingtips. And, you know, I went from potentially flying in an airliner that day to shooting one down um, to maybe even shooting down a squadron mate in, in my reserve squadron. I think we had like 17, 18, you know, pilots. And most of them were airborne that day as airline pilots since we were a reserve squadron. So imagine being ordered to shoot down an airliner full of Americans, uh, let alone one flown by one of your best friends. So it was, it was brutal. It was, uh, it was, a uh, nine 11 was tough, but you know, get over yourself with thousands of Americans dead families destroyed. Uh, it was brutal, but you know, a week after the attacks, you know, when, when I got hired by American airlines, I got like a, you know, on color stationary signed in ink by the chief pilot, like, Hey, welcome to American. A week after the attacks, I got a photocopied letter that said, dear crew member, you're furloughed. So, in, you know, in the blink of an eye, gone uh, with that letter. So that that was my airline career in a nutshell. You may have had one of the shortest careers in history, maybe. Yeah, that was quick. Can I yeah. go back and ask you a ton of questions? Of course. Like I said, from a naive American who doesn't know very much about the insides of the inside of, a you know, Navy pilots. So mm -hmm. Top Gun, mm -hmm. is that like the movie? Was that school like the movie? Was the movie like the school? Well, it depends on the movie, right? The second one really wasn't necessarily about Top Gun. And, you know, Maverick was right. just about a bunch of Top Gun graduates right. that he was going to hone into a mission, which is comical in and of itself. So let me get this straight. Current Top Gun graduates in the movie Maverick sucked so bad that they had to bring like an old dude essentially out of retirement to come back and teach them. So that's kind of an indictment of <laughs> the top gun in that movie is that none of those kids were good enough. They had to pull an old dude out. So that's pretty funny. So, you know, the first, so the second one, Maverick just sucked. The storyline was awful. I mean, it was just absolutely horrific. The reason it's bearable is because of the flying. So one of my best friends for my entire career in Naval Aviation, Ferg, uh, Captain Brian Ferguson was on orders to Paramount. He was the technical advisor, good friends with Tom Cruise and Bruckheimer. And they flew 
So in the movie, when you see actors passing out, that's them passing out. So they, you know, most of the uh, the flying in Maverick is real footage and real flying. So that was cool. But the story was just insanely stupid. I mean, on a good day in the United States Navy, getting a Tomcat airborne was a feat of maintenance. I mean, so let alone in some third world country, Iran uh, or whatever country. So it was just it was it was ridiculous. So I, I couldn't stand the second movie. Uh, the first one wasn't that bad um, about the actual course itself. Um, so there's there's a couple courses at Top Gun. I went through what's called the red course, the bad guy course. So there's like a good guy course uh, where you're going through to be a, a good guy. But all of the good guys in our nation's military have to fight simulated bad guys mm -hmm. so i i went through the what's called the adversary program so i was essentially a bad guy so i learned yeah in order to be selected to be an adversary you had to be a really good good guy you had to know all of our stuff obviously inside and out and then at top gun i studied i knew sometimes even more about our enemy aircraft and capabilities and tactics than our own so uh i went through what's called the adversary program so it was really cool i mean some of uh, the toughest flying in my naval aviation career was at Top Gun. I, you know, I did quote unquote, I use air quotes, 44 combat sorties over Iraq in support of uh, Operation Southern Watch. It was a joke. It, it's Top Gun was harder flying. Uh, you know, the airspace over Iraq was uncontested and, you know, their surf there, they're really, you know, aside from the initial desert storm first couple nights after that, it was we own the skies. So Top Gun was my, was the hardest flying uh, I had done. Um, but yeah, you know, as far as the movies, you know, th there's no Top Gun trophy. There's no, it's just, it, it was pretty, it was pretty cheesy, but it's Hollywood and it made for good theater. What's the attrition rate as far as those who make it through? Through Top Gun? Yes. And yeah, exactly. I, I, so unlike the movie, it's, it's pretty high. Really? The, uh, I'm sorry, pretty low. Meaning yeah. uh, the success rate is pretty high. The attrition rate is extremely low because that's shocking. Okay. Only the the best in their fleet squadron gets selected. You know, Top Gun and Top Gun's not a career, right? So if you're in a squadron, they pick. I I don't know what they do today, but it was like maybe one guy a year or gal every year or two years. It wasn't a lot. So if you have a squadron full of 20 lieutenants, they're all trying to be the number one uh, to go there, right? Going there, once you get selected and going there, you're pretty good. Okay. Uh, it's, and when you're there, they're not trying to wash you out. This isn't like, you know, the movie and an officer and a gentleman. Where or the Navy SEALs. Yeah, exactly. So it's not, once you're at Top Gun, they'll bend over backwards to help you out. You didn't get there because you suck. Okay. It's already uh, the best of the best there. Correct. Okay. I mean, just like, you know, the cheesy line in the first movie, you think you're good, we'll make you better. Uh, so it, it's kind of like the icing on the cake. So the success rate's very high. Very few people uh, attrite out of uh, Top Gun. Okay, you're human. Do you have to have perfect vision? Uh, I, th I forget the standards now. I'm not familiar with them, but I think you can get LASIK, whatever, to get up to 2020. Okay, um, you can't wear corrective lenses, though, right? I, I don't know. I, I don't know how the contacts or anything like that under G work. So I'm old. Back in the day, you had to have 2020. Okay. You, had to, you needed perfect vision. So I, I, I don't know what the requirements are today. I'm just And now too, now that we're old. old whiz, do you still have 2020? <laughs> yeah, man, I, I got my cheaters right here. So <laughs> now I, I need them. I okay. need them now. Yeah. And then also... I I'm just curious, did you ever get motion sick? Did you ever pass out? Because I'm talking like I just went to Disneyland and I went on Star Tours and I was so sick. It put me out for the rest <laughs> of the day. And I've been on that ride a million times. And as I get older, That's funny. like my family, the rest of the day went to Disneyland and I sat back in the room throwing up all day. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, if, if you're going to be usually those people weed out earlier in flight training, I would imagine. Um, so the only time I've ever in the least bit felt bad, you know, I was an F-18 instructor pilot for three years. If a, if a kid, uh, you know, students just shitty at flying the airplane in the back seat, it can get a little whatever. But then that's when I take the controls and I'm like, you like this? And I do it back to them and make them feel like uh, crap. So smooth the airplane out. As far as passing out, if I had, I wouldn't be here right now. Um, 
it's called G-lock, G-loss of consciousness. Unless you were with an instructor, uh, you, you black out in the old days, you flew into the ground. Right. Now, today, uh, fighter, some of the fighter jets, I know most in the Air Force, I, I'm not sure about current Hornets, they have G-cast, like uh, G, there's software where if you're going like straight down towards the dirt and you're not, the jet's not feeling any control inputs, it'll give you a couple warnings. And if you don't answer, it'll roll wings level and save the airplane. There's some videos online that you can watch of, of a kid, an F-16 kid. He blacks out fighting his instructor. He's going straight down to the desert. The instructor's screaming over the radio for the kid to pull up, and the jet does it for him. So luckily, because I've lost I've lost buddies due to G-Lock. They're, they're, they don't even know they're dead, man. They died asleep. But today, the, the technology can save lives. Okay. Well, we know you're a little bit nuts because you want to land on one of those aircraft carriers with what looks like a tiny string <laughs> that stops you. Yep. So tell me about the first time that you take off from one of those because, come on, the adrenaline has to be pumping. And the first time, like I said, that you land on that with a little string, what appears to be a little string to stop you. Yeah. What is that like? Because I see that and I think most of us see that and think, how in the hell? Yeah. Does that well, work? So I kind of did the same thing the first time I flew overhead the carrier. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm about to do this, right? So I think I was on Saratoga, either America or Saratoga were my first landings in the T2 Buckeye off Naval Air Station Key West. And going out there, you know, taking off out of Naval Air Station Key West, you're just kind of like, wait a minute, I'm not coming back to land here. I'm, I'm going out to a ship. And I just remember the first time flying overhead the boat, and I was like, oh, my God, it's down there. That's a boat. And then now you hear your buddies, your classmates, like over the radio and the landing signal officers yelling over the radio power. You know, I'm like, oh, my God, this is legit. And then coming into the break and, I, you know, I don't remember rolling into the groove behind the boat for the first time because it's just it's just it's insanity because, you know, you do it hundreds of times at the field. They paint, you know, a little aircraft carrier on the runway. They have the meatball, the lens uh, system that you fly. So. But you can't replicate rolling out behind an aircraft carrier, 5,000 people on that thing. There's a big wake, and obviously the, I'm old, so the boat I was landing on had, like, smoke coming out of the top or whatever. So it, 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 it's, it's, it's insanity. Uh, but that's where the muscle memory is supposed to kick in. From the hundreds of times doing it at the field, you just kind of – you do. I remember getting my landings and essentially not even, like, remembering them. Uh, but the catapult shot was just – in insane you know zero to 150 miles an hour in a, in a second and a half um it feels like you're still sitting there as the jets you know you're catching up to the airplane um so it's a pretty violent uh catapult shot you know it's 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 a rocket uh and the landing is a car crash so imagine sitting in your driveway and in your car and being raised up to the second floor and dropped that that's about the same force that you feel so it and it's a workout so the adrenaline's pumping yeah everything's everything's pumping you got to be on your game because if not uh bad things can happen i have to say that although in your opinion top gun is eh, the movie we have to say that the opening scene the opening song there, I mean, yeah. that's pretty, like, when I watch that, I feel so patriotic and like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I have to ask, you have to be honest here, Wiz. Do you feel like a badass when you're up there flying? Yeah. <laughs> Not on, necessarily. <laughs> no, because no. I see that. We just had yeah. a, what was it, the anniversary of uh, air refueling? Mm, oh, yeah. And like, I did not realize it was going to be right over our house. I mean, I swear mm -hmm. it was like 20 feet in the air. It was so low. And I just hear this enormous thunder and all the neighbors are running out. And that thing flew. I live in a cul-de-sac and that thing flew right over the cul-de-sac. And I thought, they have to feel like a bunch of badasses <laughs> up there. How can you not? Well, you're usually, you know, most of the time you're in the mission, right? You're you're not, yeah. <clears throat> you're not necessarily thinking about how cool you cool are or you anything are. like that. No, I mean, yeah, I'm like you. I watch the opening scene to Maverick or Top Gun, and the flight deck is an incredible experience. It, it's the most dangerous place on the planet, walking around on that flight deck. It is, it's pretty dangerous. But now you don't, I remember, you know, because there's been missions, uh, you know, I, you know, with a, thousands of hours in the F-18. I remember, like, getting, not necessarily complacent, but, like, it, it was natural, right? I, I remember a couple times just going, like, you know, I'm going to miss this someday. Or, you know, this is going to – I'm going to look back on this as something really cool. But when you're in it, it's just not 
it is what it is. And then, you know, flying back on my last F-18 flight uh, before I, uh, you know, got out of the Navy, man, I, I almost crashed because I was crying, right? When I rolled in the, to land at Naval Air Station Fort Worth for the last time, it was, it was a very emotional experience. But when you're in it, when it's going on, yeah, you, you're just kind of focused on the mission, unless you're doing something like an air show. You know, yeah, air show or like, you know, uh, flying over an NFL or a college game yeah. or, or stuff like that. Um, but have still, you been able to do that? Because that is just for the crowd. You oh, have yeah. to know that yeah. is just such an amazing experience. And I don't know what it what is it about those jets flying overhead? Do you think that just evokes such patriotism? Well, I think it, it, it it's the culmination of everything that makes this country great from uh, technology and machinery uh, and teamwork to get that jet airborne. I didn't do it. There was a maintenance crew and just the technology and the and the teamwork to get airborne. And then the, the lady or the guy in the cockpit, you know, uh, in the old days, it cost like six million bucks to train a Navy fighter pilot. I don't even know what the, uh, the math would be today. So I think that's what it is. Um, and also just, you know, America's might, right? Like after 9-11, you know, George Bush with, hey, they're going to hear from all of us soon. Uh, you know, I, I think we have that quiet reserved or we should at least like, hey, man, if you mess with us, we're, you know, it, we're we're going to come down on you like a, you know, a ton of lead. So it just evokes all of that it is the best uh, in this country. And do you have in the back of your mind when you're flying these missions or even just a test flight or a practice flight? Do you have in the back of your mind, I imagine you have to, at some degree, what I'm doing is dangerous. I spoke to somebody who um, was a Vietnam veteran, and and he talks about how sad it was to actually see some of these planes that he was on a ship, and they didn't make it. They yeah. stopped short. They crashed short of the ship or, you know, whatever just sure. happened. Yeah, my first workups. Uh, so before you go for six, eight, ten months, deployment, you actually do what's called workups. You got to go out to the boat, learn how to land, go up Fallon, Nevada, drop bombs. Oh, you forgot how to land on the boat, go back and warm up a more bomb. So you're actually almost gone more before you leave than when you're actually gone. So during workups, uh, we lost eight air crew. Wow. Um, before we even started heading west towards uh, the Persian Gulf, we lost eight air crew, including the first female uh, fighter pilot, uh, who crashed behind the Abraham Lincoln. So it was brutal. We didn't even, we hadn't even left yet. And midair collisions, stupidity, uh, uh, mechanical, just bad stuff. It, it, the sense of danger is, is, is in the background, right? Because before you get airborne in every brief, you talk about as much bad that can happen, right? You contingency plan. Hey, if we have this or engine failure, you, you brief all the emergencies, you brief, Everything that is known, right? Anything that can go wrong, let's brief. But there's always the unknown unknowns that can pop up. So the you never get complacent as in like, oh, man, nothing bad is going to happen or this is easy or anything like that because that's the day you get killed. So there was there's always a, you know, one, one of my first flight instructors in Pensacola told me, Wiz, in naval aviation, everybody is trying to kill you, including you, and you'll live a long uh, life in, in fighter aviation. And I imagine it's a fine line anyway, because you don't want to be complacent, but you can't be focusing on how dangerous it is because that can paralyze you. Correct. Now, it is it is a fine line. You know it's inherently dangerous, but you also know that, hey, I'm qualified. I know the airplane. I know, and, and you know from other, you know, when the when the F-18 you know rolled off the assembly line in the mid-80s in St. Louis, the emergency procedure section was a couple pages, right? It was the engineers like, well, these are the things that can go wrong. Here would be the procedures. You know, by the time I stopped flying the Hornet, I think the emergency procedure section was like a hundred pages. Why? We say it's written in blood. Somebody did this wrong. Let's write that down so you don't do it uh, again. So you know it's inherently dangerous, but you can't. Yeah, uh, you can't think like that the entire time, or you're not going to be effective in your mission. There is risk involved, uh, first of all, in anything, but obviously flying jets off the pointy end of a ship over bad guy country uh, is even more dangerous. You can fly, and you have flown the speed of sound, correct? Oh, yeah. Uh, I've, I've flown a lot faster than the speed of sound, but yeah. 
in my mind, I can't wrap my, I can't wrap my head around that about how you keep control of an aircraft that's flying faster than the speed of sound. Well, you know, thankfully it's not like, you know, the right stuff with, uh, you know, Chuck Yeager with the airplane vibrating right. and coming apart, you know, yeah. going the speed of sound today, it, it you know, it, it, if you're high in the air, you really don't have a sense of speed. It's just a number on a, uh, on a display uh, down at, you know, sea level or boogieing over land, you, you'd get a sense of speed, but still in the cockpit, all you hear is a hum, right? You, the, the electronics, the air conditioning, it's, it's not loud and there's no, you know, when you break the speed of sound, there's no you don't hear a boom now everybody no. on the ground's going to hear a boom but in the jet it's just it's business as usual uh but like i said up at altitude you don't have a sense of speed but down you know when i've i've gone fast above the water stuff like that you're you can tell you're moving well when you're flying above the water what can you see when you're flying that fast i would just well, I mean, imagine just you know no like, i mean I, I mean if there's clouds around and stuff it's obviously coming by but if it's clear it's just you're you're just moving what is the fastest you have flown? 1,300 miles an hour, I think. 13 or 1,400 miles. Mach 1.7 uh, was the fastest I've flown. Going straight down at the Pacific Ocean from about 60,000 feet. That was the fastest I've been. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was hauling. That's the day I almost died. There's been a couple times, but that was the, the big one. I almost killed myself. When I speak to military people such as yourself, especially the things that you do. I think what makes you men and women so different, and if I say this to you now, you still won't get it, is that most of us, the majority of us, there's no way that we would do that. There's no way. And so you don't understand that that makes you special and you'd never admit it. I've never had anybody admit it, <laughs> but most of us, would, nah. there's no way most of us would do that. I'm sorry, Wiz. There's got to be a screw or two loose in there to do that. <laughs> well, my, my, my parents said that since day one of my childhood. I mean, I think they told me a story of me riding my tricycle on the roof type of thing. So there, you know, there might be a little bit of a screw loose. You're, you're right. But yeah, we don't because, you know, you, right. I was a political science major in college. I think I'm, you know, I was a poor kid from South Jersey, South Philadelphia. I, I don't see anything quote special about me necessarily. A lot of training though. Right. Yeah. I mean, in books and this and, and discipline. So, you know, in the Apollo program or whatever, they, they were teaching monkeys to fly space capsules. So at the end of the day, you know, and now we have AI taking over and stuff like that. So I, I get it, you know, when you put the human element in it, but uh, you, you're not just one day sitting here like, hey, I want to fly, you know, F-18 Hornets. And, you know, a week later, you're doing that. It, it's a it's a long process and you really got to be committed to it. So that takes um, a lot of courage, though. It does. It takes a lot of courage. So, you know, when you do aerobatics, that's the building block of dogfighting, because when you're in a in a dogfight, you're incorporating everything you learn. So we take, you know, in training, it's a building block approach, right? So, you know, you learn aerobatics in the airplane and then you apply that to dogfighting another jet. Like, do they put you in a Oh, skin? yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, I think, well, you asked earlier about, I almost got sick one time when we had to do spin training. Oh, that I would be um, vomiting and passing out. I don't know. It would not be pretty in that, yeah. in that cockpit. <laughs> it was brutal. Um, you know, just very violent spins. But... Uh, that's the old days because the F-18 uh, that I flew had a spin recovery mode. So oh, first of okay. all, it was very spin resistant, right? You had to, you, you had to want to get into a spin, but the, the spin recovery procedures were controls release, feed off rudders, check your speed break in. So essentially let go of everything, dude. I got it. Uh, and if that wasn't working, there was a switch over here, SRS spin recovery uh, switch. You just click that switch and the jet figured it out and pulled you out of the spin. So old days, when I first started flying in naval aviation, yeah, you did spin training and had to figure out how to get out of it manually. But today's jets, you just take your, they're very spin resistant. And then if you do get into one, you just put everything back where you found it and the jet will figure it out. I hope you don't mind me asking you these questions because yeah, I sure. know as someone who would never do this, I'm just curious about how all this works. And I think a lot of us are Sure. from, like I said, the passing out to 
landing on that, you know, having that mm -hmm. little string catch on the yeah. ship. It's, well, it's a, so yeah, it's a cable, right? So, it's but it looks a, like a little string. Yeah, well, up close, I mean, it's a pretty yeah, thick, of course, pretty thick cable that can do some damage if those things break. But uh, and I think there's, you know, there's they might be, I forget the numbers, they might be certified for like 300 landings, but after 100, they get rid of them just so there's no, you know, margin for error. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, let's talk about your experience before September 11th then as a pilot. What was it that you were doing? Any deployments, any time overseas? What were you up to? Yeah, we we I deployed twice to the Persian Gulf. Uh, the first cruise was on the uh, USS Abraham Lincoln, uh, and we flew uh, support of Operation Southern Watch, so enforcing the no-fly zone uh, over southern Iraq. And then my second deployment was on the uh, – well, in the middle, we had what was, what was called a, a rim pack. So we went out into the Pacific, and you kind of did – uh, the Pacific Rim, right? We, you know, off Hawaii, and then you do these big war at sea, you know, battle groups versus battle groups with Singapore Navy and Chile and uh, like all of our allies. So that was like a two, that was like a two month rim pack in the middle. Maybe was it three? I forget. It was like two to three months in the middle. And then another deployment to the Persian Gulf on the USS Kitty Hawk. Uh, again, Operation Southern Watch, no-fly zone missions. So, yeah, two, two and a half deployments is kind of what I did. But the majority of your combat sorties came as a reservist, right? No, no, no. After 9-11, no? Those, those were all no? On, no. Uh, okay. my, my reserve squadron was mobilized for Operation Iraqi Freedom, but in our reserve squadron, we had like 20 reserve guys. Okay. So we, we got mobilized for combat. The aircraft carriers are used to having F-18 squadrons with like 15 pilots or 16. So they left like four or five of us back at home and they were going to rotate us in because a couple guys, their wives were pregnant and all sorts of stuff like that. So I had my sea bag packed. I'm like, I couldn't wait to get into it. Skipper called up and said, dude, we're on our way home. <laughs> it's over with. Oh, uh, so okay. The, the Roosevelt came back uh, early. Longer story is it wasn't over with as we learned with the insurgency and stuff like that but initially the the initial beginning of iraqi freedom was was pretty successful so my my uh, reserve squadron ended up coming home so you didn't fly at all after 9 11 besides the or did you no uh, yeah for uh so after 9 11 for five years i flew in our reserve squadron okay reserve fighter squadron they went away like i said they deployed on the roosevelt for however long it was i uh, got assigned to uh, the reserve squadron in Atlanta uh, to fly with them while, okay. while I right. was waiting to maybe go out and meet them, but they ended up coming home. Okay. Well, one of the things that you talked about in one of your podcast episodes that I listened to was you were talking about, and you we already discussed this a little bit, about right after September 11th and how you were up, <laughs> up uh, making sure nobody was up there. Tell us what the ATO is, because that's pretty scary. And you, and you delved into this a little bit, what's an ATO and what were your instructions with it? Yeah. So the, the ATO is called an air tasking order. And the only time I had seen an ATO up until that point in my naval aviation career was on board the ship. Uh, you had an ATO for uh, the AOR at the area of operations, right? So it's, it's kind of the rules of engagement. So the ATO has got everything in there. You can shoot, you, here's who you can shoot, here are the circumstances. So it's, it's kind of your, it's the Bible of, Hey, we're going in the battle. Here are the rules and, and, uh, the, the rules of engagement. So I had only seen those when we pull into the Persian Gulf and the JAG officers come out and, Hey, here's the ATO. Let's brief you on, on war, uh, on September 12th. Uh, after I, I went back into the squadron, which was now a, a beehive of activity. And there it was. There was an ATO uh, for the United States of America. It was like a, a, a just a bad Hollywood movie. The day after September 11th, when I went home and just had an adrenaline sleep, uh, I went into the squadron and there was an ATO. Insane. 25 mile radius around uh, New York City is a free fire area. You know, 25 mile uh, around Washington, free fire. It just, it, it, I, I, it was just, it was surreal reading an air tasking order for the United States that we were at war in our own country. And you had to follow a little old man in his little, 
the plane to get yes. him to land had no clue, right? September 14th, uh, you know, if everybody can recall, each day after September 11th, they kept saying, hey, we're going to try and open the airspace. We're going to try and open the airspace. Of course, they didn't. And apparently this little old man with his grandson got airborne out of Waco uh, and down in Crawford. Obviously, President Bush had his own ranch. There was prohibited airspace and there was like an airborne White House and this guy get airborne and uh, Gruff and I ended up being paired together. Just luck of the draw. Uh, and he and I got airborne and launched down there going supersonic over the United States with live missiles on our wings and bullets in our nose to potentially take somebody down. But it ended up being, you know, a little old man and, and his grandkid. But they they got a they got a, a flyby from us and forced them to land in a grass strip and they got a visit from the uh, Secret Service. I'm sure it's an experience that they yeah. will keep for a lifetime. Oh, yeah. And I remember those days, those few days after September 11th, you don't realize how much noise there is, there is up in the sky mm -hmm. and how quiet it was. Quiet. It was yeah. really bizarre, wasn't it? Just yeah. no noise up in the sky. Well, it was even more bizarre for us after we intercepted that guy and put him into a grass strip. You know, Fort Worth Center is like, all right, you guys do whatever you want. There's nobody. You're like one of your pair of five airplanes over the United States airborne right now. So we flew back uh, to Naval Air Station Fort Worth, but went to the east and flew right over DFW at like a couple hundred feet. And it looked like a Charlton Heston movie. I mean, there were just airliners scattered everywhere, taxiways, runways, none of them moving. You can't fly over DFW in the middle of the day at a couple hundred feet. And we just it, it was it was very surreal. What does it feel like when you're in the jet and you're releasing a missile? It's like a big bottle rocket. So when you when you shoot an air-to-air missile, uh, it's just a loud whoosh. It, it literally sounds like a bottle rocket, but amplified. Um, so it's a it's a loud whoosh, and the the jet will move a little bit. Um, and then uh, when you're dropping a bomb, it's just a loud thump. And, and the jet will roll a, a little bit, a big clunk. What is that like watching it hit a target? Uh, so the you just air... destroyed something you've just, you know, or, I mean. Yeah. Well, it, it, you know, obviously it depends on what it is, right? right. Uh, so air to air missile. I've, I've shot a couple of those one, a, a heat seeker at a flare. Uh, but the coolest one was a sparrow missile at a drone. So that thing went, you know, 20 miles and I could see it just a little puff, you know, like, boom, you know, shot that thing down. Um, and then obviously dropping bombs and seeing tanks explode and stuff like that. Uh, the, your number one thought is, first of all, did I hit it or, you know, number one sh thought should be success. That's what I wanted to do. Right. I wanted to shoot that thing down or I wanted to blow up whatever I just dropped a bomb on. So it's it's hopefully good. Right. So you, you put any anything else out of your mind at that moment uh, because if that's what your intended target was and you did it, you're like, boom, good. Uh, plus it also depends on the environment. If you are in combat and there's a lot of bad folks around, you're worried about getting shot now, right? So you're, you're trying to egress. If that's the last thing you were doing, you're trying to get home safe. So there's a lot going on. Uh, obviously uh, you know, the motto at Top Gun is you train like you fight and you fight like you train. So up at Top Gun, you know, it's it's pretty it's pretty sporty. You're dropping bombs. You're you're getting lit up by actual enemy radar that we acquire uh, through various purposes. So you're actually seeing what you'd be seeing over Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq or whatever North Korea, bad guy country. Um, and you're getting attacked by bad guys like me uh, as you come off target. So it just depends on. Uh, what you're targeting, but uh, there really isn't much time for reflection. You got to get home. What is the longest distance you can fire to from a jet? Uh, that's classified. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it depends Come on, on the missile. Uh, I won't tell anyone. <laughs> no, nah, well, I'm uh, you know okay. I'm not. What's the longest that you've fired? Can you answer that? Uh, well, yeah, I mean the the heat seeking missile was uh, WVR within visual range, so okay. that was about that was a mile. That thing came off and boom. But I think my Sparrow shot was about twenty miles, which is kind of public knowledge. You can probably Google and and see what the max range is. But there are 
there are there are missiles that you can you can haul some pretty pretty good ranges, especially if you loft them, right? So if you kind of throw them all the way up into the ionosphere, uh, there's no little air up there, little resistance, so those things can move. So technology is amazing. It is absolutely yeah. amazing. Well, I mean, today, you know, with F-35s and, and fifth generation, you know, sixth generation fighters coming online, if you see your enemy, it's, it's something horrifically has gone bad. So we still kind of teach dogfighting, but if you're in a dogfight in today's environment, it's everything failed. I mean, in today's environment, based on our sensors and intelligence, satellites and, you know, all sorts of stuff, we know when an enemy pilot's leaving his home. You know, when he when he gets into his car uh, type of thing. So we know have when you, they're taking off. Have you been in a dogfight? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, we dogfight all the time for training, but not. But like in last, a real dogfight? No, the last real okay. dogfights were Vietnam. Okay. All right. Well, that's what I thought. But, you know, scary. Anyway. Yeah. All right. Let's switch a little bit. Did you lose friends during combat? Uh, uh, during combat? Zero. Absolutely not. I know of. Uh, folks that were lost in combat, but uh, my, in my 15 years of, of fighter aviation, the 16 people that I lost uh, were, were not in combat. They were all it mishaps. It was war at home. Yeah. Uh, well, the war at home would, the, the suicides, I, right. I've lost three, three F-18 brothers to suicide, uh, including uh, groomsmen at my wedding. His picture sitting right over there. Yep. What monsters did you bring home? Did you experience or do you experience pts not anymore uh completely healed so i you know i i had a lot of childhood trauma obviously that we've talked about i took that in the military and then losing 16 folks uh piled some more trauma on uh and then you know and the suicides uh, but also the physical trauma you know i was a landing signal officer i stood on the back of the ship when i wasn't flying just with little foamies in my ears and i'd help my fellow aviators get air uh safely aboard the ship i have horrific tinnitus for the rest of my life i have a loud pitch in my ears that at times is maddening um landing aboard the ship that you know hundreds of times it was a car crash the catapult shots pulling g's you know pulling all these g's is not good for your mind plus there's just a culture of alcohol and drinking uh, and then when you separate from the military you you leave a fighter squadron in my case where you trusted the pilots in that squadron with your life where they weren't there. Uh, and I, you know, transitioned to a civilian job on wall street, which I couldn't, tr you couldn't trust somebody to hold your coat. I mean, these people would push their own mother in front of a bus to make a dollar. So it was a very tough, uh, transition, uh, going from, you know, esprit de corps and having a mission and being united for purpose to making money, you know, in a wall street firm. Uh, which just does not, did not resonate with me. You found your healing in a couple of different ways. And mm -hmm. you mentioned about, I think a weekend over the Southern border that really changed your life. Yeah. May of uh, 2021, uh, myself, Marcus Luttrell, the lone survivor, uh, Jared Taylor, one of the founders of Black Rifle Coffee, uh, who was a JTAC, uh, another uh, Navy SEAL veteran and also an NFL player, uh, eight year is four year all American. And then an eight year in the NFL, he, uh, suffering from horrific CTE. I went down to, to the mission within in Mexico and we did, uh, Ibogaine and five MEO DMT. We did psychedelic assisted therapy and. You hear about that more and more. In fact, Sean Ryan speaks about it all the time now. It's got, it's here. Uh, and we are saving and changing lives with it. I got 30, 40 years of therapy in a weekend. Trauma completely gone. I was a drinker, wasn't a good drinker, couldn't even look at alcohol when I got home. It hit, I, I was able to experience my sister again, uh, my father who had passed away. Uh, everything uh, was healed, and I could not have been... Uh, I am a, I, I've never been a better husband, father, or human being. This is where I found my faith again. I, I experienced whatever word you want to use. I choose to use the word God. I experienced God again. You can call it source, truth, creator, uh, divine, whatever word you want to use. Psychedelics connect you uh, back to who you truly are. It just knocked 
you know, 52 years of rust and ego and shame and depression and alcohol and drugs. It just completely dissolved it and uh, showed me who, who I truly am underneath. So I got back and started the No Fallen Heroes Foundation, uh, a 501c3, waiting for our IRS approval to provide healing grants to vets, first responders, and their family members to get access to these uh, life-saving and changing medicines. How often do you take those? Uh, one and done. Most veterans really? are, oh God, yeah. It's a one and done. First of all, it's not recreational. I was, I didn't move for 12, 14 hours. You have to be under supervision by someone, don't you? Oh, it's a, it's, it's uh, the mission within is a half spiritual place, but half clinical. You do blood work before you go down uh, EKG. You're hooked up to an EKG through the entire journey. There's a couple nurses there. There's a cardiac doctor there. It, it's, it's half spiritual, half, you know, uh, medical. Um, but to be honest with you, these medicines have been used for thousands and thousands of years without EKGs and doctors and stuff like that. So we in the West, you know, we're, we're overly cautious, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but. Well, this is the thing though. How many veterans are addicted to Oxycontin and all that it's destroying their lives. And so Tons. with these psychedelic drugs, is it just opening up your brain pathways that have closed? It rewires neural pathways. That I've seen quick. Navy SEALs with brain scans that are dark and gray and black. And then three, four months after the medicine, it's white. I know guys who are in 15 meds, you know, five to wake up, five for lunch, five to go to bed. Haven't taken a med since. Wow. These things, uh, the neuroplasticity of these medicines actually regrow dead or, or make new neural uh, pathways. Uh, ibogaine has been used for a long time for heroin addicts and opioid addicts and one treatment done. So this isn't something you have to keep doing. So this is a big threat, obviously, to big pharma. I mean, so the VA is just a pill factory for yeah. a lot of veterans. And these medicines potentially uh, have the are the cure. They were for me uh, and for the grant recipients that we provide healing grants to as well. So can people go to your website now to find more information? You bet. Go okay, to nofallenheroes.com so and okay. you can find out more information. We send veterans to a couple places. One's called The Mission Within, just south of San Diego, which is ridiculous. So it's a felony here, but an hour south, you can you can fix yourself. And then another place in Costa Rica called Awaken Your Soul. Um, but my mission objective is to start healing our heroes at home. Oregon, Colorado are leading the way. Uh, we have a strategic partnership with a former NHL player who's opening a, a big ranch in Colorado uh, because they just legalize these at the state level in Colorado. Because it really sticks in my craw that you know, these our veterans incur these injuries serving our country and they have to leave our country to go get access to these healing medicines. It's we're, we're, we're getting there. I was in Washington last week. I met with Congressman Luttrell, Morgan Luttrell, uh, Marcus's brother. Is he related? Uh, I'm kidding. Yeah, exactly. It's creepy because they look alike. They sound alike. It was. Yeah. Dan Crenshaw, uh, Congressman Ryan Zinke. So three Navy SEALs in Congress are are, are taking this and and running with it. But, you know, the past couple years, this has made it into the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. Where do good ideas go to die? The Senate. So I, I'm manifesting, I'm hoping, I'm praying that this stuff makes it through the Senate and we'll start getting money for research. But it really, it, it there are no such thing as coincidences because I got out of my Uber last week to go into the Longworth off, uh, you know, congressional building. And I went left to left with a two-star Ukrainian general. That guy left, I guarantee you with money or promises for even more money. And I left with, Hey, Wiz, we're trying and, you know, maybe we'll get some hearings next year. It was, it was very frustrating to me. We're not even taking care of our heroes at home while we're sending money overseas yeah. to turn more people into hair teeth and eyeballs, which did you see the not... conversation that Tucker Carlson had with Mike Pence? I saw that. She's not my not my concern, right? How does that not make every American's blood boil? Yeah. That's what I want to know. Correct. You're all about mind, body, and spirit. You're an active participant in yoga and, and meditation. What has that done for you? You bet. Well, that that was the pathway to the medicine, right? So years ago, just a couple dark nights of the soul of friends like, hey man, you need to go walk down the street and try some hot yoga. I'm like, I'd kick my own ass if I saw me doing hot yoga. Uh that was a great 
initial first step on my healing journey. And that led to breath work, right? Because, you know, yoga is kind of a moving meditation movement with breath. So I found mindfulness, I found meditation, which just was perfect. And then the icing on the cake uh, was the medicine work. Having done yoga uh, and breath work, I was perfectly prepared uh, for my medicine journey. So yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a holistic thing. To be honest, these medicines aren't for everybody. You can do yoga. You can do breath work. You can climb to the top of a mountain. You can walk on the beach. There are so many different ways to heal. But for folks like me, kind of some radical experiences in the military uh, and in life, maybe some radical healing. So these, these, well, I think your message is that conventional medicine has not really been kind to a lot of veterans because it's made it worse. And there are different ways that you can help yourself mentally and spiritually and financially, because Wiz, you also want to help veterans financially. And I know that you've done that through a book and you've written several books. So can you share with us a little bit about that? Yeah, the first one's called From Sea Level to Sea Level. Uh, it was just kind of my journey leaving uh, the military, going to a Wall Street firm, a volatility arbitrage firm, and just kind of the the things that I, you know, I, I it was like breathing in the military, right? Like a, a red team or debriefing after a mission. I brought those things to these businesses and they thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. It just made no sense to me that these, wait, you don't debrief or you don't plan or so wrote that book and then you know, God takes care of fools, drunks, and sailors. And in uh, 2020, I, I essentially predicted the COVID market crash to the day. Uh, and we made millionaires at Topkin Options, which is my training firm. You know, little old ladies in tennis shoes, literally in the millionaires uh, as that uh, imploded. So, so after making a ton of money in the COVID crash, that's when I did the medicine and then started the foundation. And, you know, we're putting down the ladder to uh, save and change the lives of vets. Healing uh, should be free. It is free technically, but I know a lot of veterans can't, don't have five grand to go to the mission within or to Costa Rica. That's my job right now is the No Fallen Heroes Foundation is to fund those journeys. But that's also why I was in Washington. Like, why aren't you paying for it, uh, Uncle Sam? So we're getting there. We need to switch things up where uh, Congress should have the health benefits of the veterans. And mm-hmm. veterans should have the health benefits of Congress. It's I've always sickening. said that. Yeah. If if uh, th- we would fix the VA in 24 hours, if the president, vice president, sec def, Congress, Senate, all of those people had to get their health care from the VA. But uh, apparently they're they're better than veterans. What message do you want to give to veterans or really anybody else who is really struggling mentally, he- physically, spiritually? Healing is possible. There is a way out. Uh, when I get these texts or and when I go on these retreats uh, and people look at me and say, Wiz, I don't want to kill myself anymore. Uh, or I get a text like, oh, my God, I just got done. So it is possible to heal. I've been there. I've been laying on the floor of a bathroom and uh, all that type of stuff. Um, healing is possible. There is a way. I guarantee you. Um, uh, the, uh, because the, all these medications at the VA throw down people's throat, it's masking the, the, the root cause, right? It's just numbing everything. And you just kind of go through life as a ghost. These sacred medicines get rid of that veil and allow to see you to see who you truly are. So I guarantee you healing is possible. I've had a bunch of, uh, folks, parents, gold star spouses say, if my son or daughter or husband or wife had known about this, they would be here today. I have a ton of those. Uh, and those people are helping to pitch into the fight as well. Cause when, when I hear that, like, Hey, I guarantee you, Frankie, uh, a Marine, uh, uh, the son of a, a good friend of mine who took his own life. She's like, Wiz, I guarantee you, if Frankie had known about this, he'd be here today. So I'm going to do everything I can, uh, to help. So healing is possible. I guarantee you. You mentioned your website. Is there anywhere else that you want to mention that we can find you on social media or online? Yeah, uh, nofallenheroes.com, obviously. And then you can follow No Fallen Heroes on Instagram. Uh, and then my personal Instagram is official underscore Wiz Buckley. My last question is always for everyone. What does America mean to you? America means hope to me. Every time in my life, so and I love telling people using this analogy with people, if you're listening to this or you're watching this, 
you have survived every one of your worst days, right? Clearly. And the worst day that you don't survive, in my opinion, will be the best day of your existence, right? So hope. There is so much hope in this country, and there's so much opportunity. You just have to get up and do it, right? When in doubt, move. Do something, right? That's when, you know, in the military, uh, you know, whenever I hang out with the ground guys and they're like, dude, you, you do not stay still. You got to move, man. So keep moving. But America, America is hope uh, to me, even though things look pretty dark, uh, whether it's politically or war and all sorts of stuff going all on around the world. We still are, you know, I'm, I'm a kid of the eighties. We still are that shining house on the Hill, even though it's a pretty bad neighborhood, man, we, we got the best house and let's, let's keep it that way. Wiz, thank you so much for sharing your American story. It has been an absolute pleasure. You bet, Tina. Thank you. God bless. And uh, I appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country. 